Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 61, and last Sunday's message was titled Brighter Days, and today the message is titled Two Comings or Two Clear Comings, and what does that mean? It means that, you know, it's interesting because we can look back at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and we can say, oh, it's clear, you know, Jesus Christ, he's the Savior. I mean, a lot of people still don't believe yet. Maybe they'll, they're yet to believe, but we see it clear because hindsight is always twenty twenty. But if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find that the prophets and almost every prophet, probably every prophet, spoke about the coming Messiah in one way or the other. So you have that going on, and it's interesting because I have this book called Shepherd's Notes, and it really does explain the whole idea of the two comings, and just the way he says it, I figured I'm not going to steal it, I'm just going to kind of read it and give them credit. So Shepherd's Notes on page 93 says about this, it says, the prophets viewed the two comings of Christ like two mountain peaks. From a distance, they appeared to be the same peak. Traveling through Pennsylvania, uh, as I have in the past, it's beautiful mountains. And yes, when you're far away, he's right. You can be looking at two mountain peaks, and they can look like they're one peak. But they appear to be, be the same peak. But on coming closer, it became apparent that there was a large valley in between them. The first and second comings are separated by a large span of time, by now about 2,000 years. Now, as we go through Isaiah's prophecy, again, written some 700 years B.C., as we go through it, we're going to be talking about things that are happening in in our day and our future. So at some point, we almost have to pinch ourselves to say, am I really in the Old Testament? Because it seems like the New Testament. So we're going to jump in and we're going to look at this in four parts. So Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now there's a break. Understand, and nobody says that chapter delineations and verse delineations, nobody says they're from God because they came hundreds of years later. They came so that as we go through the scripture, it's just easier to find your place and things to that nature. So it was a good good idea, but again, not necessarily from God, but not a bad thing. It's, a, it's an aid, so to speak, when we read the Bible. So there's a gap there. There's a, there's a comma, and as we go through the uh, prophetic word, sometimes... A comma can leave us thousands of years pause before the next thing is fulfilled. So I'll continue. It says, in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those or console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So one out of four is Two advents of the Messiah. Now, we're going to start with the first coming. 
Remember, from their perspective, Christ hasn't come yet. From our perspective, he has, and we're waiting for him to come again. Um, But again, God sees time all at the same time. He doesn't see linear time like we do. He doesn't see chronology. He knows everything all the time. But keep in mind, who is Isaiah speaking about? He's not talking about himself. I talked about the prophets and how they would often speak for, uh, for God or for uh, the thoughts of the people, just supernaturally able to do that. He's speaking for uh, God the Son in the first person. So Christ is actually speaking this before he comes to the earth. Interesting. What we also see here is we see a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see this in the Old Testament. And we see this in the New Testament. I'm going to get a little deeper into that. So, A, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, which, if God is one, makes no sense to them until they understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Son took the form of a man. Then it makes more sense, right? So this is interesting because... Even in the Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. People say, say there's only one God. It's not three gods. We agree. There is not three gods. It's one God who exists in three persons. As a matter of fact, the word one in Hebrew is echad, which means a united one, which is different from yochid, which wasn't used in the Old Testament, which means a solitary one. So even when God speaks about himself, he speaks about himself as a united one, three in one. And when he made us, body, mind, and spirit, he made us according to his image, right? So we're kind of three in one, if you think about it. And sometimes the three in one, if you're a Christian, it fights with each other, doesn't it? <laughs> right? The flesh fights with the spirit and you're like, well, what's going on here? But, you know, we can decide who we want to listen to, God or our own flesh. So you see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there's uh, sometimes a united, right? And then there's, there's separate, like the time that Jesus came in the form of a man. So it says, also, B, the Lord has anointed me. What is anointing? Anointing is a commissioning for special service, right? So the Father is commissioning the Son to take care of the sin issue. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And really, every Christian, if you think about this, has a special anointing. We have the ministry, the Bible says, of reconciliation. We find that in 2 Corinthians 5.18. But the question is, are we being obedient to that ministry of reconciliation? Right? And that, what does that mean? Not everybody's called to be a pastor, but as we live out our faith, that others around us will see Christ in us and desire the things of God. C, to preach good tidings or good news to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. The poor, the downtrodden, the broken. We can look at this spiritually, but God also cares about our emotional health too, doesn't he? It is a big part of who we are. Some people are just broken in their spirit. You know, they're just, just got so beat up from the world. And the Lord is here to say, I'm here for you. You know, maybe somebody here this morning, you came here and you're feeling beat up by the world. You're feeling empty. You're feeling like something's missing or this world isn't satisfying you. My question is, will you let him into your life? Because that's, listen, you can come turn to God at any time if you think about it. The good tidings, the good news of salvation, the great news for the poor. Folks, when you look at the 
uh, economics and the political uh, you know, scene, you look at the geopolitics, uh, most of the world outside of the United States is very poor. So even if a person in their socioeconomic class is kind of held down in this world, God says, you've got all of eternity in my kingdom, right? And you, you see Jesus reaching out to the broken, to the downtrodden. Uh, very important. God evens the score in the afterlife. It isn't like the class system here in this world. Humans make that, not God. D, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening the prison to those who are bound. There's a lot of uh, metaphors here that are extremely powerful. If you think about it, I did prison ministry, so um, it was actually the only time I was inside of a prison, which is good. Uh, so, uh, and it's, it's, listen, concrete and steel, small boxes, and in, in other countries, it could be a pit, right? So it's a very powerful metaphor that Jesus speaks of. But look at these words, to be captive, to be in prison, to be bound, really no power to set ourselves free. And that's the truth. Sin and self are our biggest prisons. Actually, in Isaiah 59, which I covered before, uh, that you know our sins will separate us from God, unfortunately. But God wants to rectify that problem. He wants to set us free in so many ways. Even when we do turn to him, a lot of the uh, addictions and compulsions that we have, God wants to see us free. You know, how close do we want to get to him? And I would ask for somebody who doesn't know the Lord, what is keeping you in that pew during the altar call? And what will it take for you to be ready to give yourself to the living God? It's just a question. And E, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is God's timing, right? God came, we can argue about what the worst period of time was, you know. In World War II, they said, this is the worst, it'll never be worse than this. Then World War II came. This is the worst. So it depends, I guess, from your perspective how bad things are. But in the Roman Empire, 50% of the entire empire was enslaved. They would go to uh, Germania. They would go to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. When they would win, they would bind people and sell them. On, it's horrible. Horrible. The United States, thankfully... Because a lot, because of Christians said, this is bad, we need to eradicate this, and we went to war over it, but not in the Roman Empire. Their economy depended on it, it was evil, and they were not about to get rid of it. Uh, on a little side note, uh, my wife and I, we just like history. You know, we were watching, um, actually, the, not the, what people try to make it into, uh, romanticize it, but the real Spartacus, the guy actually existed. He led a slave revolt and actually had up to 70,000 mostly men. And they, they fought with the legions, the Roman legions. Eventually, the Roman legions put them down and crucified them on the road. It was a signal to the rest of the empire, don't try this. God sent his son during one of the worst times in human history to say, listen, this world is, is a fallen creation because of sin. Mankind has done this. But Jesus said, I want to free you from this. So you know what's amazing? A lot of the Roman slaves became Christians. And check this out. Even though the Romans held them in bondage, they actually were fellowshipping with free Romans. And, you know, there was a big push to end it. But the Roman Empire was just too oppressive. Uh, over time, if you look at history, the Roman Empire eventually collapsed. They really weren't invaded. But because of a lot of the evil, I believe, and a lot of Christianity being preaching of freedom, 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 eventually they, they ended up collapsing. But these are very, very strong metaphors. 
all of these, if you look at them individually, you take them piece by piece. I'm going to stop here for a moment because Jesus stops here when he came to the earth. And I want to read, turn with me to Luke 4, 16. Luke 4, 16 in the New Testament. So you see, 700 years later from the prophecy, Jesus comes, starts filling all these, fulfilling all these prophecies. And in verse 16, in case it wasn't written by the same person, not from the same family, not even from the same part of the world, not the same language, right? When people say the Bible, it's collusion. They don't know what they're talking about. 66 books over a period of 2,000 years, three different languages, completely different cultures. People never met each other before. So we look at Luke in the first century, verse 16. He says, so he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It's a common practice that's still practiced today. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, which we just read. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And you see the same things written here. Um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, preach deliverance to the captives, recovery to the sight of the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stops. That's why I stop, by the way. As long as I'm following what he does, I'm in good shape. Verse 20, then he, Jesus, closed the book. He didn't finish. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he doing? And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? If we could put up the timeline. You know, God is perfect. God knows all. We just kind of have to catch up with God. And this is sort of a timeline based on the scripture. If you look at it, it's a, from Compass International. It's great. We've used it before. But um, right around in this area is the prophecies concerning Jesus. Okay? Over here, if you remember, I did the dispensations. Over here, right, Jesus comes and uh, he, you know, he comes and he dies for our sins. Then we're in the age of grace. At some point, the prophetic clock is going to kind of start ticking again for Daniel's uh, 70 weeks. The rapture will come where God calls his church home. You'll see the 70th week of Daniel. So Christ came here, right? Ascended into heaven. Right here, he's going to come back. And we don't know when that is. Only false teachers predict dates. There's a reason God doesn't want us to know. The second coming of Christ. And then here comes the millennial kingdom. But in here is this tribulation period. So you can see it better on this one. Jesus knew that he was going to come twice. The first time to redeem our souls. The second time, which is a future from now, to redeem the earth. This is God's place. This is God's creation. Unfortunately, mankind through sin has ruined it in a lot of ways. But actually, it's kind of a testament to his creation. The earth, even in its fallen state, is still quite beautiful. But God's going to do a new thing. No more hurricanes, volcanoes, bad weathers, all that kind of stuff. And we'll see that. So let's continue, right? Christ comes. He does all these things that we just read. There's a 2,000-year pause. And let's read what's going to happen when he returns. Very different. It says in verse 3, 
he speaks about the day of vengeance of our God and all the other things I read. And I'm going to take it step by step. So A, the proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance for what and on who? Well, he's got to reverse the sin curse on his creation, just like he reversed it in our souls so that we could actually get to heaven. It's very, very legal, very logical, very methodical, very systematic. When you, when you, and and I'm, I'm more than happy to people either do it on the index cards for Wednesday, ask questions. Ask it at the New Believers class. We want you to know. Knowledge is power. So he, want, he has to destroy this sin curse and this hold that Satan and his demons really have on humankind. He's got to do that. Okay, this largely takes place at, one, the Great Tribulation, which was that gap period that I showed you. Also culminating with the second coming when he returns to earth. What happens after that? Well, B, he's to comfort all that mourn. Console those who mourn in Zion. When you think about it, and you you really kind of put this together, we are moving towards globalism. It's a fact. You know, you, you see this thing with Europe and Brexit. The people who run countries, whether it's Europe, uh, many in our country, are really trying to push this towards this global movement. And what that's going to happen is it's going to be a centralized government. So it's going to be even bigger and more bloated than the federal government. And one person is going to head it. You can call him the globalist. You can call him the antichrist. Call him whatever you want. But he is going to lead these nations. He's not going to be a good man. And once he has that power, he's not going to relinquish it. You think that, you know, fascism ended with Hitler or, you know, Stalin was a fascist, a lot of these leaders, the, the Castro brothers, etc. So this is, this is humankind's nature, to destroy itself. And then what, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to return, square off with the Antichrist armies, it's going to make light work of them, and then he's going to come back. But it's going to be a messy planet. War makes a mess. I studied World War I and World War II. Rabies went up, starvation, all kinds of things happened during these conflagrations. So when the Lord comes back, not only is he going to curtail the sin issue, deal with the Antichrist, rule from Jerusalem, but now he has a ministry to do. He's got to comfort those who mourn, especially those in Zion or Jerusalem, because that's where a lot of this battle is going to take place. It's going to be messy. It's going to be destructive. And Jesus is literally going to come and clean up, help to clean up the the rubble and the ashes and the people's hearts who survived through all this. C, he'll give beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Again, Jesus is concerned not only with the topography, the geography, the environment. He's also concerned with our emotional state. Very important as believers to know that. When we fall, when we're exhausted, when we're run down, we've got to turn to God. He's always there to heal us. He's always there to, to, to build us up. So this isn't just for this area. This is what he does, you know. I got to be honest with you, and you could ask my wife, hopefully she won't say too much, but she met me before I was a believer. I was an extremely negative person, extremely cynical. And um, when I became a Christian, it didn't happen right away, but I started to change. I like who I am now better than who I was before, just saying. I mean, I saw a lot of bad things as a police officer in the first year, uh, I worked for another agency. I worked for two departments. I saw a murder. Actually, we went like 100 and... I still remember that day. It's 20-something years ago. Like 100 and something miles an hour. Blowing through lights. I mean, driving... A, it was... And a guy stabbed his, uh, his estranged wife. 
And we got there just as he was done. And, of course, the coward dropped the knife and put his hands up so he didn't get shot. But um, I remember that like it was yesterday. You wonder why I was cynical, negative, you know, depressed. Um, and we couldn't save her. She had too many holes in her. Maybe too much information there. But um, my heart started to change. I started seeing things from God's perspective. I started saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, my faith in humanity was just not there anymore. And he, he just had me focus on him. And I was able to now go through these situations and still keep him in the focus. And it changed my perspective. Because I don't know what would have happened to me, folks, by the way, if I didn't become a Christian. I think I was just, I was going down. It's not just for me. It's for you, too. Beauty for ashes. Ashes. How do you get beauty for ashes? Only God can do it. The oil of joy for mourning. Only he can do that. D, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You know, we use metaphors too. We use a metaphor, um, an expression, you wear your heart on your sleeve. If that really was the case, you'd be dead. So it's an expression. Um, people say you wear it well, right? You're not really wearing anything, but it's, it's a metaphor. God used metaphors in the Old Testament. To wear the garment of praise is to... It's an amazing thing. You know, when you know what God has done for you, when you've trusted the living God, it's almost like you're wearing a garment of praise. You just want to praise him. You just want to look at him. You see, you read the news, you read about the terrorism, and you're like, you know what, Lord, your day is coming. Something for us to look forward to. The person who doesn't know God is hoping the UN fixes it, or the United States, or humanity. It's not going to happen, folks. It's not going to happen. E that they may be called trees of righteousness. I've read the scripture that speaks about all Israel. When the second coming happens, they're going to see Christ coming in the clouds. He's going to return, and they're all nationally going to turn to him. And that's going to change them, just like I was changed when I became a Christian, because you, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? You start to change. And uh, it's an exciting time. So righteousness comes from that. We're not righteousness in ourselves. We're only righteous when we're in Christ. So you see this strong, deep roots, unmoved in a storm with Christ as a foundation. I want to read to you something a little uh, in Romans 3, 21 through 26. just talks about this whole idea of righteousness. It's, it's to be declared righteous, Right? Every, you know, we all have a past. I have a past. We, we still sin. How could we even be righteous? Well, let's read it. Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, or in other words, for a crime to be favorably disposed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I understand this terminology. Um, and our crime was our sins that have separated from us. But he took care of that on, the, on the, the cross. He offered a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Romans we're going to get into after Isaiah and it's going to be enjoyable. We're going to understand the nuts and bolts of our faith. How does this happen? How does Jesus die? All this stuff is going to be explained in Romans. Really good portion of scripture. How am I righteous? Not in myself, but in Christ. Good stuff. Four through seven. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities. Wasteland, right? The desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Different dispensation. I'm going to get back to that. Men shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy shall be theirs so too the conditions after the second coming verse six god names priests of the lord this is important what is a priest well let's start with the easier one if you look at the old testament what is a prophet we're in the prophet isaiah so there was a conduit that went in two different directions you had god you had the people and you would see these mediators in the old testament because they were typified to speak about the great mediator Jesus Christ it was a temporary situation so you had God speaking to the prophet like Isaiah speaking to the people priest went in the other direction what the priest did was the people offered sacrifices to get to God right remember it's the old covenant old dispensation the sacrifices went through the priest went to God so you see the mediators go in two two different directions So here's a good question, and people, this comes up a lot. Well, what about priests today? Let's read Hebrews 10, 8 through 14. Jesus fulfilled two roles. Well, he filled like four roles. King, prophet, priest, but also the sacrifice. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus, in this portion of scripture, you see him as the priest, offering the sacrifice the sacrifice is himself so let's go through this it says previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law is a temporary system that the priests were a part of and they all knew that in the scripture then he said behold i have come to do your will O god he takes away the first that he may establish the second But that will we have seen sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if anybody says, oh, I'm just going to offer a sacrifice for your sins, that's blasphemy. Jesus already did it on the cross. He ended the system. He ended its efficaciousness, okay? Verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily. Now, this was still written while the priesthood was going on, although it was a defunct system. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Even in the Old Testament, it was a temporary covering. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice, you see the repetition in here? I always say, and I've been taught, you see repetition in the Bible, pay attention to it. This goes on and on through eight, nine, ten, three chapters, repeating, repeating, repeating. 
The sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So technically, there is no order of priests anymore. Some still claim to be priests, but definitely not in this capacity. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He gave up, he gave his life. He died for our sins. He bled according to Leviticus 17. And that's the end of it. There's nobody who can really stand as a priest when you look at the strict interpretation of that office. It doesn't exist anymore. However, when we go to the next dispensation, you kind of see something change. In verse uh, Revelation 1.6, it says we're a kingdom of priests. Right? We look into the millennial kingdom, not like the Old Testament priests, because they were according to Levi. You had to be from a line. Okay? We're all priests, but in a different office. So in this millennial kingdom, we'll be perfected. We won't sin anymore, which is kind of cool. We'll get these new bodies that never wear out. And we're still going to help the unbelievers who were left um, kind of do a, a ministry there to still reconcile them to God. So there'll be a role, but it's not like the Old Testament priesthood's done defunct it's it's finished according to the scripture it's interesting verse 7 it says instead of shame they'll get double honor now the tribulation saints those who make it through this difficult period in the future they will now be under a situation where they're persecuted yes probably in the united states too this is future Because Christianity is in the way of all these agendas that um, the world is trying to move towards to unify the world. Uh, So they got to get rid of Christianity. We see that in a lot of countries. We even see some laws here when a Christian tries to maybe go out in public and share. Um, There are some states that have some very restrictive laws about sharing your faith. I know this that in in some of the public schools, the one my son went to was actually pretty good. Uh, you can talk about Muhammad, Buddha, all these things, but the name of Jesus, you know, you, seriously, I mean, I've experienced it. I've seen it. Um, again, not every school, but a lot of them are moving towards this because the name of Jesus has power, right? They don't want that. They don't want a hindrance towards this, this movement, okay? So those that were um, feeling ashamed or feeling beat up through this, this global system, when Christ comes, there's a new sheriff in town. Everything's just going to turn, right? It's going to be beautiful. Luke 9.26, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, meaning here, of him or her, the son of man, will be ashamed when, they, when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels, you know, when I was a new believer, it's peer pressure. You know, I was like, I kind of kept it to myself and, you know, I was in a rough profession. And uh, after a while, you know, I got stronger in my faith and my belief system and the Lord convicted me. He said, are you ashamed of me? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. So it was cool because my role changed in the department. They used to call me Father Joe. I didn't like that. And it was mocking. <laughs> so after five, ten years of doing this, they're like, man, he is different. He's not changing. Then they would ask me to do funerals for their relatives and stuff. So you can see, you know, weddings. You can see how things completely change. And I'm glad that I, at some point, stopped feeling that way because it was, you know, it wasn't a good thing. I'll just leave you with this, and we'll move on to the last few verses. I've often wondered, I wondered reading this 20-something years ago, this whole thing about the Antichrist and globalism, you know, I know it's God's word, but you know what's amazing? 
you kind of can have those ideas. And then when history catches up to the scripture, you're like, oh, wow, now it makes sense. We're living in a time in the United States where people are so willing to give all of their rights and freedoms to the government. I don't get it. You know, I was born in 67. I think I'm kind of in between two generations. And I'm just seeing how people just want to be taken care of. They'll give away their health care, their right of self-defense. They'll give away uh, education, student loans in colleges. You wonder why there's a student loan crisis? Because the federal government got in bed with the universities. And I can really go on about that. I feel bad for the millennials that are stuck with a mortgage. And it's not for a house. It's for a four-year degree. You know, there's no accountability in these universities. I went to Rutgers. You know, I see some of the glorified projects they build and stuff, and I'm not knocking the school. I got a good education. What I'm saying is whenever the federal government, it's a big, bloated bureaucracy, gets involved with every facet of our lives, eventually they're going to own us. I'm just saying. So we really need to vet our candidates. I have no disbelief about... You, I look at see. I watch overseas news. I see what's going on in Europe. They want, even this Brexit thing. They're trying to knock it down, and kill it before it goes full circle. A lot of these nations, they want a central leader. They want a central, small, elite body of people controlling all of Europe. What do you What do you have when you have bloated governments? You have a bunch of sinners, with a lot of power and a lot of money, making decisions for your lives. They have it. That's my uh, definition of bloated government for you. But uh, listen, this isn't a political discussion. It's just I'm starting to see as time goes on, as the decades keep, full, you, know, uh, uh, you know, this is America. We fight for our freedoms. You know, blah, blah, blah. a lot has changed, even in the last 20 or 30 years. Just saying. Verse 8, continuing on. So I, I know that it's going to be because I believe God's word, but I can see it for myself unfolding before my eyes. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. So three out of four is the everlasting covenant. He says, of course, God loves justice and he hates robbery, but he's speaking specifically here regarding the religious system. And we've covered religious hypocrisy here from this pulpit. We've talked about it all through Isaiah. You know, God's like, you you, you make it look like you're doing something for me. Religious rituals. People do rights even today. They just do rights and they're just hoping that when they get to heaven, like, you know, they're not going to get the down elevator. Uh, But... God's like, why, why are you doing it? If your heart is not for me, I don't understand. So it's like you're robbing me. You're taking something away from me. Um, anyway, continuing on. He speaks about the everlasting covenant. I've talked about this before. The new covenant was spoken about in Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, all the way back, even from Genesis. God said, I have this one covenant for this dispensation under the law. Under grace, I have a new covenant, and you got to make the transition. All right, so the everlasting covenant, why is it everlasting? Because, first of all, it's retroactive. We read in Hebrews how the priests would minister daily, you know, the sacrifices, the people, they would have to keep doing it over and over, years and years and years. When Christ gave his, his life, he, he shed his blood for the remission of our sins, it was a once and for all act. And check it out. 
It was retroactive. The Bible talks to us about even Jesus descending into the lower parts of the earth before he ascended into heaven. You know, Jesus paid, I don't know, how does, how does he do it? He's God. For the sins of those in the past, the present, and the future. You say, well, how does that affect us? Because he knew that we would be born, he knew that we would sin, he died for our sins too. So it's the everlasting covenant because it's, it's retroactive from the beginning, and it goes all the way until the last soul is born. It's pretty wild if you think about it. So it's the everlasting covenant. We talked about that. Verse 10, last two verses. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me, remember the metaphor again, with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So four out of four is the fruits of the new covenant is righteousness, salvation, and joy. Rejoicing in the Lord, souls being joyful in our God. After uh, the message about sin, one of our young adults came up to me and she said, I've really lost my faith in humanity. Um, I really enjoyed your message. I said, I agree with you. I've lost my faith in humanity a long time ago. Um, But my rejoicing comes in the future that God has for us. Just think about it. If you don't know God, you're hoping that humanism or the human race fixes its problems. But people have been hoping that for thousands of years, right? World War I was supposed to be the, the war to end all wars. World War II. I have no faith in humanity. My faith is in God and his future and his timetable. B, garments of salvation. Again, he has clothed us. Nothing we can do to, make our, to save ourselves or to make ourselves righteous. C, the bride and the groom metaphor. Hopefully, for those of us who are married, hopefully when we, it was our wedding day or you're planning to get married, you want, to, you want to be decked out. You know what I'm saying? You want to look good. You, you want to put on your best face and your best hairstyle, right? I mean, it's, it's a special day. Some, sometimes God uses these wedding metaphors when he speaks about his love for his people. Like he's, you know, in a spiritual sense, like he's the bridegroom and his wife, the Bible tells us, collectively is the church in a spiritual sense. That, that's how much he loves us, you know? I know we live in an area that's very hard-hearted. And sometimes we can talk about love and it can just go over people's heads. But God really loves us. I can't express that enough. You know, and un- sadly for some people, it's going to be when they actually experience his coming and his remaking of everything, they're going to say, I should have never doubted. I should have never doubted. But that's us. We, we can be frail. We're human. We're sinners. But he loves us. And then D, lastly, this agricultural metaphor, budding, growing, springing forth. I don't know about you, but I love spring. And I can't wait for spring. (laughs) You know, my wife has planted some real pretty trees like the dogwood. And we have a purple maple. They're just so pretty. Um, Japanese maple, right? That's in front of the house. Uh, And just in the springtime, I hear the birds, the bees. Um, I'm a beekeeper. I just love them little 
just buzzing around, pollinating, watching them. I've taken shots of them. They're beautiful um, with a camera. And uh, (laughs) I have to to be, you know, (laughs) I love my bees. So and even even the grass, I know it sounds, maybe it's weird, like everything looks so dingy right now, but when the grass starts to grow and you see that green and all the bald st- spots start getting filled in, I'm like, man, it's so pretty. I like cutting the grass. All right, Joe, that's enough. But uh, <laughs> I love the spring and God uses these. It's amazing every year how he's programmed into vegetation, when to stop being dormant. When the leaves come out, when the flowers start opening, man, it's gorgeous. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but I'm more excited about creation than I am about technology. Just walking outside and hearing the sounds and the frogs and the birds and all good stuff. Okay. <laughs> so, so, in closing, this is what God does. This is what God loves to do. Um, in the millennial kingdom, there will not be war. He hates war. He hates when people kill each other. And he's going to make sure he physically stops all that. And it sounds too good to be true. It is here, but it isn't with him. With God, all things are possible. As we close, Isaiah 51.10, God clothes us with salvation. He covers me with righteousness as a bride and a groom. God's metaphors are very personal. And I want to leave you with that. We can talk about timelines and dispensations. We can talk about the deep things of the word. And I kind of went off in a little bit of a direction as a new believer, looking at all the scientific stuff, and you miss the more important things. At the end of the day, God is a personal God. He made each one of us. When we feel love for somebody else or somebody loves us, he made those feelings to love. Imagine if he made a human race where there was no love. Even in this fallen state, there's still love. Love feels so good, I can tell you. And love feels good to give it to others. But God's love transcends any love that we could have ever experienced here. Any hurt, any wound, any rejection. God loves us. He's a personal God. So as we close, you know, there are two comings, yes. But at the end of the day, whether it's his first or his second... He died for us because he so loved the world and that anyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.